I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and this is Valley Voices Radio from New England Public Media. Every Saturday for the rest of the summer, we'll be sharing some of the best storytellers from our live Story Slam events. They're produced at the Academy of Music. And today we've got stories from a slam held last December at El Mercado in Holyoke, Massachusetts. The theme of the night was first time. I know what you're probably thinking, and some storytellers definitely went there. But it also became clear that night that anything you do for the first time can be super awkward or terrifying or embarrassing, but it's almost always memorable. Kelly Norris gets us started with a story about becoming a teacher. My very first day of teaching was in January, in the middle of the school year, because that's how long it had taken the kids to run their former teacher out of the classroom. I didn't know that when I applied, but my very first morning I sat in this little office with the principal and he told me that. But I was 23 and it was my first teaching job and nothing could make me feel less than excited. I had my photocopied chapters of the house on Mango Street, I had my plastic tub of color pencils and I was ready to go. So he walked me up to my classroom and right before he left he just said, are you nervous? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, maybe you should be. <laughs> and then he left. So I'm standing there in this empty classroom, and the walls are bare, and the desks are all facing forward, and the fluorescent lights are humming. And I'm waiting for the kids to come in. So sure enough, the second bell rings, and they come flooding in. And I was so preoccupied with just making a good teacherly impression that I barely even noticed them. And I went through my lesson, and they read when they were supposed to read, and they wrote when they were supposed to write. And everything seemed fine, so I was like, what's the problem? Um, I found out later, uh, this was Chelsea High School, and Chelsea was in receivership, much like Holyoke. And the state kept bringing in these experts to take care of all their problems. So everyone thought I was a discipline expert that the school hired to like handle these kids, which could not have been further from the truth. I'm a total pushover. So anyway, this goes on for a couple days, but then finally the ice broke on Friday, last blog. I was going through some really boring vocabulary list, and all of a sudden, Raul, who sat in the front row, he was a 15-year-old kid with facial hair and a big parka, and out of nowhere, he just goes, mess, our last teacher was such a jerk. And I was like, okay, if I engage in this conversation, I don't really know where it's gonna go, it might end up somewhere uncomfortable, I should probably just keep going through my vocab. And I was trying to decide how to respond, and then Carla, who was sitting next to him, this girl with gorgeous, long, shiny black hair, she said, yeah, miss, he was really mean to us. And I suddenly realized that like, they had been through something with this teacher, and I hadn't really thought about it, and I hadn't asked them about it, and in fact, I hadn't really asked them anything about themselves at all. So more kids pipe up and they're all telling me these stories about this guy and the picture that I get is that he was basically a really old white man who had spent his whole career in private schools and really disrespected them. And I didn't want to end up like him, so I was like, I need to listen. So I put my vocab aside and before I know it, the kids are all talking and this other kid, Sean, this gangly kid with acne face, gets up in the front of the room and starts impersonating their teacher 
And one of the things he does is he takes the whiteboard eraser and he puts it on the board and with a straight elbow, he like marches to the other side of the board and then he goes back where he starts, puts it like two inches under that and marches across again. And the class like erupts in laughter. So then all of a sudden Sean goes, look everybody, no beep is laughing, no beep is laughing. And we all turn and look and this student's name was Sopeep and he was from Cambodia and so Peep didn't talk, ever. He was an elective mute. And uh, he was a tiny guy, but he kind of like hunched into himself. And even his handwriting on the page was so tiny and light, I didn't even see it sometimes at first. This kid was just trying to be invisible. And I didn't know what trauma he had brought with him from Cambodia. Um, but I would learn later that many of our kids were from parts of the world where they were coming from, from war and violence and poverty, and I knew nothing about it. We had kids from Iraq and Afghanistan, from Guatemala and El Salvador, kids from uh, Serbia and Croatia. Nothing in my teacher ed program prepared me to understand them or to understand how my background, where I came from, was playing a part in this whole classroom dynamic. I had everything left to learn, and this was the day that it all started. <laughs> so we all turn and look at So Peep, and sure enough, there's like this little curl of a smirk in his cheek, and he's like moving imperceptibly as he laughs, and we start looking around at each other, and we were all just so happy that So Peep was laughing, and So Peep was smiling. And we shared this moment of joy, and the bell rang, and they left for the weekend, and I stood there in the empty classroom. And I was like, this is the best job ever. <laughs> Thanks. That was Kelly Norris, who dedicated this story to her students. She says every teacher remembers their first class. You're listening to Valley Voices Radio from New England Public Media. I'm Vanessa Cirillo. And our next story comes from Terry Ann Falcone. For all of us who were not part of that cool kid crew growing up, this one's going to hit home. I'm in sixth grade, and um, I'm not one of the popular girls like Linda Frisello, she irons her hair, you know. And instead, I'm sitting, you know, in the back of the classroom, and I go to lunch with these two girls whose clothes smell. And in addition to that, I'm just too tall, you know, like for a girl there. And um, like for lunch hour, we have to wait for the lunch bell to ring, and we have to line up in height order. And the first girl, the shortest one, Melanie, she was in charge of making sure that we stayed in the right height order or she blew her whistle. So, now, you know, I really hate the popular girls and, and I wanna be like them. And I really hate the popular boys and I want them to like me, especially John. I've had a crush on him since first grade. So. Anyway, Melanie decides to have a party, like a, a graduation party, because we're going to be graduating from sixth grade to go to junior high. And so they go to the party, and there are people at the food table, and there's uh, people swaying and dancing to Three Dog Night, uh, Joy to the World. Um, but I don't see the popular boys or girls. 
I don't know where they are. So, and then Melanie comes over, uh, and she blows her whistle, and, um, and says, okay, everybody, listen up. I have to go referee a game outside on the deck. You stay here and behave. All right. So she goes out to the deck. I don't know. I follow her. And that's where all the popular boys and girls were, and they were hanging out, and they wanted to play a game called college. And, uh, and Melanie was going to be the referee, and she's going to explain the rules. And so she says, well, okay. So there are four boys, and they are all college professors, and they're all lined up in a row. One, two, three, four. And so each girl sits on the boy's lap and takes a class, which means she makes out with him for two minutes. <laughs> and Melanie kept time. Um, and then the boy tells her if she passed or failed. And you know, you usually like to pass, right? A class, right? But in this case, you want to fail, because that means the boy likes you, and he wants you to take the class over, and you got to make out again. So. I don't know where I got it, but I got up the nerve and I got in line, you know? And the first college professor was John, the guy, you know, that made my heart beep. Um, and, and, but before I could even sit down, he looks at me and he says, pass. Then the next boy said, pass. And the third, pass. And the fourth said, pass. And they start laughing hysterically. And I'm crying. And I, I run down the driveway. Uh, just to run away, and Melanie uh, comes after me, you know, she comes over, and she says, okay, so you wanted, you, you wanted a boy to make out with you, and they didn't want to make out, and I was like, no, they didn't, that's right, you know, and she said, do you want me to get a boy for you to make out, and I was like, yeah, and she said, I'll be right back, so... So, you know, and it's getting dark now, and I, I don't know, I'm wondering who's she gonna bring back, you know? And then I see David Otto. <sighs> David Otto has special permission to leave school early on Wednesdays so that he can put leotards on and uh, take his ballet class. So, but, oh well. So, M Melanie Lee's and he says, hi, and I said, hi. And, and, and then he says, do you want to make out? And I said, yeah. Um, and, he, and, he, and he said, um, do you want to go behind the bushes? And I said, yeah. And um, so we go behind the bushes and we start to make out. Um, and he licks me all over my face. <laughs> it was like he kind of got mixed, like he, he knew his French Something with French kissing had to do with the tongue, but I guess he, he like got confused in the instructions. Um, so then we, we, we finish, we leave the bushes, and he says, uh, see you graduation. And I said, see you graduation. Um, so I still hate the popular girls, but now I don't want to be like them. And uh, I've had my own first kiss. And P.S. Um, I run into David Otto years later, and he's a member. He dances for um, the New York City Ballet. And, and so, so I said to him, hey, 
You want to make out? Thank you. Carrie Ann is a teacher and performer who recently made her way back to Western Mass after living overseas for years. She recently told me, quote, I just wanted what every kid wanted, to belong, and I didn't know how. Then you get smarter and realize you need to be fussy about where you want to belong. So yeah, I think it's safe to say both Terry Ann and David are doing just fine. You can see a photo of Terry Ann as a sixth grader in all her super tall, curly-haired, unpopular glory on our Valley Storytelling Community Facebook group, where you can also play along with today's game. Describe your first kiss in three words or less. Search for Valley Storytelling Community on Facebook or grab the link at nepm.org slash valleyvoices. I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and you're listening to Valley Voices Radio, produced right here by New England Public Media and featuring some of the best storytellers from our live Story Slam series. Our last story today is from Diana Norman. She talked about the journey to having her first child, starting with her hopes of finding the perfect apartment. So when I finished graduate school, my husband and I realized we needed a place to live. And we started looking for an apartment, but we started too late, apparently, because it got really close to when our lease was up, and we were still looking. Thankfully, a friend of a friend's acquaintance had an apartment to offer us, and we went to see it. It was beautiful. It was this huge, stately building set back from the road right in the center of Amherst. It was quiet. It was well-decorated. It was just perfect. Even all the utilities were included. I mean, we just couldn't ask for anything else, but there were just a couple downsides. We didn't have our own entrance, so we had to enter the apartment by the main door, but there were no other tenants in the whole place, so how cool is that? Um, and another downside is that we had to like sometimes answer the phone and bring in the mail and let in the florist and that sort of stuff. And um, well, I forgot to mention, it was a funeral home. Um, <laughs> It wasn't like a real busy funeral homes as funeral homes go, but (laughs) nevertheless. But you can get used to anything. You really can. And we got used to that place really fast. And we loved it. We loved living there. After we'd been there for about four years, I finally got pregnant. And we were so excited because we'd been waiting and hoping and praying. And finally, I was pregnant. And I honestly, to tell the truth, can't remember how this happened. But somehow, my husband talked me into having a home birth. So we did our due diligence, right? We, we um, got all the books we could find about how to birth at home. We interviewed midwives. We hired a midwife. We put together this home birthing kit, like it had old shower curtains in it and this big jug of vinegar and a fish scale, important stuff. Um, as I said, it was my first time. so. I read all those books, and because I read all those books, I had it. I just knew that I was going to be able to do this labor and delivery thing. Piece of cake, right? Again, it was my first time. I was a little deluded. But I had three worries. There were were three things I was kind of concerned about. The first is that I was going to be left to labor alone, that my husband was going to have to go off on some errand or do something, and I was going to be there by myself. The second was that I was going to be in labor, and there was going to be a visitation at the funeral home. So those rooms right below us were places where people would come, you know, the families would be there, it would be packed. 
and I was gonna, like, I was gonna have to be quiet. And I'm not the best at being quiet in the best of times, but I figured in the midst of labor, being quiet was gonna be an issue. And the third was, you know, I think everyone thinks this, you know, the midwife wasn't gonna show up. But things went according to plan, right? And um, we got closer and closer to the due date, and I was reading all the books, I was totally prepared, and I went into labor. It was only four days after I was supposed to be due, so it was cool. And that morning, I got a phone call. It was the funeral director. He needed my husband to come downstairs and help him to move a rather large body into its coffin. Um, <laughs> you know, he wasn't gone that long, right? But when you're laboring by yourself, it seems a very long time that he was gone. He was tickled pink, right? He had this vision, like, I'm going to help usher someone from life and welcome someone to life. You know, it was beautiful, poetic thought, you know, but I was just like, where is he? Um, you know, again, I thought I was in labor, right? I was like panting, you know, getting through those contractions. I was doing well, but, you know, it progresses, right? It gets harder. And... Um, in the afternoon, it started getting kind of tough. I wasn't able to pant through those contractions as easily anymore. And then the car started coming, and that funeral home was filled to the seams, just busting out with people. We could hear their voices drifting up over the driveway, so I was pretty sure they'd be able to hear mine. But you know what? I was so cool. I kept it together quiet as a mouse. I tiptoed as I paced through the apartment. I moaned into my pillow. I was cool, cool, cool. But when it was over, when those cars pulled away and the lights went off and the doors locked, I lost it. I ran out to the kitchen and said to my husband, that's it! I want to go to the hospital! I want an epidural! My husband, the calm being that he is, said, honey, I'm, I'm not sure that's what you want. <laughs> I'm, I think that you, that you want to have the baby here. I want drugs! So this is no lie. My husband said to me, well, honey, if you want to go to the hospital, I'll have to iron my pants first. The man dragged out the ironing board, plugged in the iron, and proceeded to iron his pants. You know, if you've ever been in labor or watched someone in labor, you're a little bit adult at the time and so I just wandered through the house and finally ended up in the bedroom while he was ironing his pants and somehow magically I fell into that beautiful um, mindset of labor right which the contractions were just washing over me and I was actually falling asleep in between them it was it was wild you know a lot of people never get that but I really did I was having these great contractions and I was sleeping and my poor husband was trying to be supportive throughout this whole thing, right? Doing the pressure on my shoulders and my back and bringing me drinks all the time and smoothing out the sheets. I had been sleeping, but he hadn't slept the whole time. And I think we were at 30 hours by then. He was exhausted. So he said to me, honey, you know, a half hour. I just need a half hour. Let me sleep for a half hour. Wake me up and we'll keep going. So I did. Good for me. I said, fine, go to sleep. And I got through that half hour, the end of the half hour, I went to the bathroom where promptly my water broke and the baby crowned. I could feel his curls. And I come into the bedroom, honey, honey, the baby's coming. He jumps up, no, no, the baby's not here, he says. <laughs> then he looked, the baby is here. I'm gonna call the midwife and I gotta wash my hands. I'm like, you can't wash your hands, the baby's coming now. 
wow. But he did it anyway, and he got back in the room just in time to catch our son. And guess what? The midwife didn't make the birth. All three of my fears were realized. <laughs> but it was a wonderful first time anyway. Thank you. Diana Norman lives in Western Massachusetts, but no longer in the funeral home. That baby and that husband were in the audience at El Mercado that night to hear Diana tell this story. I think he even ironed his pants. That's our show for you today. Next week, we've got road trip stories for your summer afternoon. It's going to be a wild ride. We've got fire, rats, and a mystery man on the side of a quiet road. Join me. This show is produced by Katie Wright. Our theme is Love Disease by local guitarist Buddy McEarns and his band. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Send us an email at valleyvoices at nepm.org and let us know what you think. Oh, and don't forget, subscribe to the Valley Voices podcast and check out our summer short series, a single five-minute story. It's like a snack version of this show. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or at nepm.org slash valleyvoices. Valley Voices Story Slam is produced by New England Public Media and the Academy of Music. I'm Vanessa Cirillo. See you next Saturday for more local stories on Valley Voices Radio.